Well, church, so far this year, we have uh, focused on prayer. We focused on hope. We started the year with 40 days of prayer. We then moved into hope initiatives, and more recently, a series that we entitled Hope Has a Name. Today, we're going to begin a new leg of our journey in a series that we're entitling The Gospel and Race. Last week, I asked you to look for areas in your world where the shalom of God is perhaps conspicuously absent, and maybe you saw the disarray in your office desk when you went home and you said, I don't see the shalom of God here, and maybe you've encountered relational strain within your family at various times and said, I don't know that I'm experiencing the shalom of God here. Of course, the the palpable tension this week leading up to the conviction of Derek Chauvin and the death of George Floyd underscores a, a profound need for racial reconciliation in our world and a profound place where we are inviting the shalom of God. So my... Hope and sincere prayer as we go into this message today is that the Lord would move us in the direction of his shalom, that I would celebrate with you the small steps that he desires to take us on, as well as the big ones. And you know, it it occurs to me as I was preparing this message, we've been talking about this uh, among our staff for the better part of the last year. Uh, I've, I've read more books and articles and different things in, in preparation for this message, and yet, uh, for a guy who never quite feels prepared when I get up to preach to you, uh, this week uh, is probably more so in that arena than ever before. But as we tackle a hard subject, and we wrestle with the weight of it, as I hope that you will in these weeks, I would like to actually begin with what I think is some very good news First and foremost, that worldly unrest is often the catalyst for spiritual renewal. You've probably seen that at various aspects in your own personal history. As I was doing a little bit of study even just this week, I was taken back to 1968, which has been called a 12-month period of history when many Americans thought their country was having a nervous breakdown. I had not been brought into this world yet at that point. So I can't speak to it with firsthand knowledge. Many of you can, and you could share your experience. When you look at the history books, you see that high-profile assassinations, the war in Vietnam, class struggles, racial hatred, economic hardship, the sexual revolution, all of this being dramatized and magnified by popular culture, and one author wrote it this way, in an increasingly aggressive news media eager to hold political and cultural leaders accountable for society's shortcomings. Some of you remember that season. Kenneth Walsh wrote about that season and said this. He said, the underlying public mood was a growing sense that a horrible toxin had been set loose in the land Many Americans thought their country was having a nervous breakdown. But as I thought about that odd time in our nation's history, it also took me back to some other history lessons. That in the late 60s, the late 60s gave birth to the Jesus movement, 
which began in the West Coast and swept across the country, giving birth to denominations and parachurch organizations, revival in the upcoming generations, and a lasting legacy. Even at Penn State in the 1970s, I don't know if you know this, but Penn State University boasted the largest gathering of Campus Crusade students in the country. In 1975, right on the tail end of some of these things, our church began a campus church that exists to this day that has had an impact over thousands of lives for the gospel of Christ. So we don't lose heart in seasons of worldly unrest. Though in saying that, I am not downplaying or minimizing the profound emotion and hurt and trauma that many have experienced. But I am reminded that we do not fight against flesh and blood. One other little bit of good news. I was speaking to uh, one of my colleagues here in town, Harold McKenzie, uh, who is a, a brother in the Lord who pastors at Unity Church. And he was reminding me as we spoke about this topic that there is a unique calling on the church, that we are uniquely equipped to deal with the sins and the maladies of the human heart. Aren't you glad that we have a heart specialist in Jesus Christ who is not intimidated by our self-righteousness or disgusted by our failures? We're uniquely equipped to deal with sin. We're also uniquely commissioned to reach all of our world. And finally, we're uniquely promised a glorious future that Jesus Christ is reconciling to himself people from every corner of this world. This is a little personal uh, testimony to you this morning. I spent much of the weekend uh, in some level of distraction thinking about this message and how to best bring it to you. And knowing that there was a certain level of anxiety or trepidation in the subject itself, I've been praying about it rather intensely. This morning I was awake well before I normally am on a Sunday morning and just spent some extra time in prayer. And as I was praying, uh, my phone uh, gave me a little notice that the Bible verse of the day had come in. And uh, I looked at it and was intrigued to find that this was the Bible verse of the day for this morning. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You see, we have a unique promise of a glorious future. And if at any point in this message or in the weeks to come, you begin to feel what is a, a, an anxious heart over this subject, the pain and the trauma that oftentimes goes back generations, bring yourself back to the glorious future of what Jesus Christ is right now creating. And so in all truth, while I feel the weight of this subject profoundly, I bring it to you, friends, as Paul wrote to the Romans, in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. For that is what our world needs here today.
I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, uh, a powerful passage of Scripture beginning in verse 9, and I'm going to read through 21. It's a little bit long today, but then we're going to actually focus in really quite specifically. Romans 12, verses 9 and following, which incidentally is marked or, or head noted in the ESV as marks of the true Christian. So it got my attention, I guess, if nothing else. Romans 12.9 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Church, I want you just to imagine for a moment as you process the weightiness of these verses. I want you just to imagine the impact of these verses being lived out, is this not at the same time both incredibly difficult and incredibly beautiful? I wonder what kind of healing and hope could be released through this kind of humility. And if you underline the word humility, I'm going to bring it up a handful of times in the message today. Sometimes it's literally hard to imagine what the impact of this kind of living would be because we haven't always seen it very often. But today, under the banner of the gospel and race, I want to simply ask us to soak in the ethos of this passage, but then to focus our attention specifically on five small words from verse 15. Weep with those who weep. I said earlier that we're going to celebrate small steps in this journey. Part of the reason is that when you look at the history of racial tension and the difficulties that we have experienced and the varying uh, experiences that we have had so that my experience doesn't look like yours, your experience doesn't look like mine, it's so easy to become overwhelmed and not even know where in the world to begin. Today I'm not going to cover every detail, but I'm going to simply ask us to consider 
this concept of lament and weeping with those who weep. Does God have something for you in that command? I hope that the answer is yes. And as we scratch the surface on this series, Gospel and Race, I trust that he'll stir in your heart. I do want to give just two caveats, and then we're going to unpack this a little, with a little more detail. The first caveat is this. I would rather that we as a church try and miss the mark than not try at all. You know, in these couple of weeks that will follow, we are not going to get everything right. We're going to say things that we probably shouldn't have said. We're going to miss things that we probably should have said. We'll say some things poorly or incompletely. But we would rather this be true than us not saying anything at all. So about a year ago, when the the city church pastors gathered together and wrote a statement talking about a statement on racial unity, the reason that we said yes to that, the reason we say we want to be part of that conversation is that we don't want to be standing in the corner saying nothing. We would rather try, even if our trying is not as good as we would like it to be. So we want to be in the conversation. The second caveat is this. These messages are not politically or culturally motivated. While we will certainly be talking about an issue with political and cultural implications, we are gospel motivated. We believe that the maladies of the human heart, every human heart, are not beyond the grace of God. In fact, we need God to do something in us that we cannot accomplish on our own. So our focus is on what God is desiring to do. As I said before, it's hard to know where to start. But let me begin with a simple biblical reality check from the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Come back to this as often as you need to. And you probably will need to at one point or another. A two-minute overview of Jesus, the church, and race looks like this. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who lived on the earth but did not look like most of us here, at least on the outside. He was racially different than me. And yet the grace and mercy of Christ has been extended to people like me who have been grafted in to the family of God and beyond so that Jesus Christ is right now gathering to himself a people in worship from every corner of the world so that his redeemed people are right now a multilingual, multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic group with the glorious promise of his future. Now, I just said that to you in the space of a minute and a half. So in some ways you could say, well, gospel and race is actually pretty simple. But there's something about it that's actually quite complex. Throughout history, the human race has inflicted terrible damage upon our fellow image bearers. One of the things that the gospel does is it brings us into the reality that each one of us bears the image of God. That is one of the, one of the core issues That every time you see a tragedy of a loss of life and your mind wants to take you to the categories or the tribes to which you may be associated with or they were associated with, the bottom line is this is someone who is made in the image of God. And our hearts should weep with the heart of God when anyone in his image 
is killed or lost. So let me ask you to consider this concept of lament today. Weep with those who weep. It's an interesting concept because I realize I don't use the word lament really ever. You know, when we talk about not liking something, we usually talk about complaining. So actually, next time you go home and somebody says, stop complaining, just say, I'm not complaining, I'm lamenting right now. We don't use the word that often, and I would say, especially in certain cultures, we're not terribly in touch with the notion of lament. But I want to ask you to consider today three things that lament does that are profound and deep and help, helpful and healing. The first one is this. Lament acknowledges pain and discomfort. I realize that may sound very obvious, but let me ask you to consider this. In recent years, I have learned again and again, I'm still learning this, but I have learned that I need to get better at naming my pain. You see, because I can be prayerful or I can be anxious, but I really can't be both. So I've learned to name the worry, name the pain, name the hurt, name the fear in my life, and I do that in prayer. And friends, that is a huge game changer. When I'm actually able to put words to what I'm feeling and then honestly take that before the Heavenly Father, that is a game changer in my life. And I realize that lament and acknowledgement of pain and discomfort is very common in Scripture. When you read through the Psalms, you read Psalms like Psalm 6-3, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 10-1, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. So you see that Scripture points us again and again to acknowledge pain, to acknowledge discomfort. The author and pastor Mark Vogrup said this. He said, when the subject of racial reconciliation comes up, many of us often lack a common language for discussing it. We don't always understand what people mean when they use certain words. Lament helps us to reset the conversation. When we come to a place of understanding and embracing the idea of lament, we can actually ask the question, Whose pain? Whose discomfort? And what is it? The last thing that I would want to convey to you today is that the difficulty or the weight in preparing a message like this is somehow on par with the, with the life and generational pain that I have not had to endure that many people have. Whose pain? Whose discomfort? The posture of lament allows us to acknowledge it, especially the pain and the discomfort of others. Humility allows us to listen. Several years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was sharing some of his family experience, and as we were talking about sort of the racial implications, he's an African-American, and he said, Aaron, I don't know if you understand what it's like to say things to your kids like this. I know it's cold out today, but when you're on the street, please, please, please don't put your hood up on your, on your hoodie. Please don't do that. I know that, please don't put your hands 
in your pockets when you go into the store. And as I listened to that, I realized I've never had to think that way. That's not been part of my my cultural experience. That's not been part of my personal experience. But as I listen to that, as I listen to that challenge, it causes me to realize that's significant. That's a way of living that I have not had to endure. But a, a posture of humility causes me not to say, well, I've got my own issues and I don't need to compare. I can just listen. I can just be humble. I can just hear and I can learn. I had a similar experience with a man I didn't know very well who was concerned about something that I had said in a sermon a few years ago, and um, I called him, and, I, and I, I listened to him. He's a police officer, and he began to share his story with me, and in a very similar way, he began to share with me things that I didn't have to experience or didn't know. He actually asked me the question, do you know what it's like when you're trying to protect and serve and then you leave your wife and kids who are afraid every day as you go to work? They're afraid for your life. And I had to say, no, I've not experienced that. I have some occupational hazards, don't get me wrong. Some of you are not going to like this message and so you're going to send me a mean email. I'll pout about, I'll lament for a little while. But I haven't experienced that. I haven't experienced what these guys have gone through. But humility allows us to listen. So I think lament is not a bad place for us to start, maybe for that reason. It allows us to acknowledge pain and discomfort. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. I want to make the argument to you today when Scripture calls us to weep with those who weep or adopt a posture of lament, that lament is better than apathy or aggression. I, I think that sometimes we fall into these one of these two ditches when we're trying to navigate the concept of race in our world today. The first one is the ditch of apathy. That's when we just simply say, hey, this is, this is not my problem. You know, yeah, I recognize that there's a mess, but I didn't make it. I don't think I did anything to create this. And so that can lead us into a place of apathy. I don't know if any of you have had the experience of parenting, but when we ask kids to clean up a mess, the children suddenly develop an acute level of clarity regarding the origin of said mess. I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't make that mess. Every child in the history of humanity, I think from every culture, has probably said that to their parents. I didn't, I didn't make that mess. To which the parents would respond, well, thank you for sharing that. You see, your mother and I have been trying to keep a better account of who made the messes in the house. That's really what we were getting at. You've helped us deeply today. No. I said, like, clean it up. The great irony of your kid's desire to worry about only the messes that they have created is this. <laughs> when they made you a parent, you did all of the cleaning up for months upon months upon months. That notion inside of us, I think all of us are born with an inherent sense of justice. Nobody taught us to say this isn't fair. And nobody taught us to say I didn't make 
this mess. But God doesn't give us the excuse of apathy. He says things like Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. We read last week from Isaiah chapter 58, all of the mandates of scripture calling us to pursue justice, not allowing us to be apathetic just because we perhaps feel like we didn't make a certain mess. Matthew 25, Jesus actually says this. This is when he's getting right to his end times discussion. And he says, the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I find it fascinating that neither the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament or the words of the Savior himself leave us in the place of saying, if you are sure that you made the mess, then join me in my work of reconciliation. He just calls us to be part of his work. Avoiding apathy or simply saying, Lord, help me not to be apathetic. That's a fine prayer. That's That's a baby step in the right direction to say, Lord, help me not to be apathetic. So you say, well, what are you asking me to do? Well, number one, awareness. As we were just talking about, lament allows you to enter another person's world to to experience something that you have perhaps not experienced yourself. How about your prayer life? I think about, I was very convicted of this as I was preparing this over these last weeks, that how much time have I spent on my face before God simply asking him to do a healing work? Our world needs a healer. Not a better idea, not more guilt and shame, not a swift kick in the butt. Our world needs a healer. And we have access to the healer in prayer. And so another step in the right direction might simply just say, Lord, help me not to be apathetic in my prayer life as I think about the needs of our world in relation to race and the gospel. Then what are the action steps that I might take? Well, I don't know exactly what role you will be called to play in this area. But I do believe that a heightened sense of awareness, saying no to apathy in prayer, will reveal a step that you didn't realize before. That God can show you the next step in which you can be part of true justice in this world, of truly giving a voice to the voiceless or speaking up for somebody or simply helping to support somebody who does not have something that you have. And I'm not exclusively speaking to white people or black people or brown people or other colors. I'm saying I think all of us can take a step in that direction. But let's not be apathetic. And I will, I will say specifically to people who look like me, that's where I've fallen a lot of the time, simply saying, God, I don't know what to do, so I won't do anything. I don't want to be apathetic. Lament is better than apathy. Lament is also better than aggression. Let me uh, dig into this for a moment. The idea of tribalism is that we must look at our world divided into group identities. The problem of, of prejudice essentially is this, that we assign undesirable or evil traits to one group and in such a way that we stop seeing the uniqueness of that image bearer of God. 
So in, in, a, in a relatively extreme case, we could see things like this. A Nazi pamphlet describes Jews saying, Jews only look human with a human face, but his spirit is lower than that of an animal. He represents unparalleled evil. He is a monster subhuman. The Tutsis in Rwanda were called cockroaches. KKK literature mocked the black community as you, in the U.S. as gorillas. Two million victims of the Khmer Rouge were deemed microbes who must be swept aside and smashed. White supremacists in Charlotte, Charlottesville spoke of the parasitic class of anti-white vermin. Why do we have this kind of, like, like how do we get there in vast sort of tribalism thinking? Well, in these extreme cases, what we see happening is the devaluation of entire people groups and then treating individuals as exemplars of that lesser, even subhuman group. And this has led to devastating, lamentable, terrible history of oppression and abuse of power. This has been a part of our world history. Ironically, and I want to say this sensitively, but just hear me out, if you will. And if you need to go back to the big picture of who, what Jesus is doing, then, then do that. Ironically, it has become very much in vogue to see all of life through this lens of power inequalities and oppression. If someone has power, they must be an oppressor. If someone has power or money or wealth, they must be a tyrant. And this is where we actually get a better gospel answer than what the world can give. I want to be clear when I say this. Do we have a history in the United States of oppression? Yes. Do we have a history of injustice and inequality? Yes. Do we need to repent of sins of apathy and aggression? Yes. Is there a better solution than tribalism? Yes. You see, at best, tribalism ignores the imago dei in that other person, that image of God. The better solution is this, that when Paul writes to the Romans in verse 3, very interestingly, he's talking about the differences in, in racial people. He's essentially saying, who's better, the Jews because they have the law of God or the Gentiles? And the gospel answer is this. Read the whole chapter. He, he dissects it for quite a while. But the ultimate thesis is this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, friends, the fact of the matter is this. It's very difficult to, to sustain an attitude of apathy when you weep with those who weep. And similarly, it's difficult to sustain an attitude of aggression when you weep with those who weep. The problem with so much of our modern movement today in society is it has simply transferred the locus of evil from one tribe of people to another. And at best, we've got a lateral move, but we're still not finding healing. Is there a way that we can find the healing power of God? And this is our last point I want to lean into. Lament makes room for God to move. Friends, if humanity was its own solution, we would not need a savior. Lament opens up the door to gospel healing in ways that shaming and virtue signaling and endless blame 
can never do. I want to give you just three things real quickly that, that lament actually does when we assume this posture. Lament, see it through the lens of humility. Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, and 1 Peter 5.5 all say the same thing. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Ask God for humility to hear another person's perspective. I would suspect that there are people that are here that would say, you know, I'm still not really convinced there's anything that I could do or I would have anything to do with this issue. Could I encourage you to receive a different perspective? Read a book like one I'm reading right now called Becoming a Just Church by Adam Gustine, challenging you to think about the full flowering beauty of the gospel in every way that God wants to do, not simply speaking, but making an impact in our communities, caring deeply for matters of injustice. To the person who maybe finds themselves in a self-righteous posture, quite certain that your posture is the right way to be and that you have, you have identified who the wrong people are, I would recommend a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. The thing about both of these guys that I love is that they are bringing a gospel perspective and they're challenging me to think outside of my typical boxes. We do well when we experience lament as humility. You may not realize that lament is a legitimate part of our worship. The Old Testament scholars estimate that two-thirds of the Psalms have elements of laments in them, as well as then subsequent promises to give God the glory as we wait on Him. So lament as humility, lament as worship, and finally, lament as invitation. One scholar said it this way, lament is an appeal to God based on the confidence in his character. Weep with those who weep. I was thinking about this challenge, and the Lord brought to my mind a circumstance that I encountered him in a very, very powerful way. A couple of years ago, I had the, it was, it was a true privilege to sit down and, and to meet with a family in this community, different race than myself, different life experience than myself, but believers in the Lord. Their story was incredibly hard as their son had been shot by the police, when they went to check on him, he had some instability in his life. He brandished a weapon. There were all kinds of things. Everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. Their son is dead. Everybody's pointing fingers. Everybody's upset. And we sit down to talk. What I experienced that day was not blame, was not anger, there was a sense of grief, there was a sense of deep hurt and deep pain, and there was a deep faith that I saw on display that perhaps I had never seen nor had to employ in my life up to this point.
We prayed together. We sang together. We wept together. And God was there. God showed up in that moment in a way that was more powerful than perhaps anything I have experienced in many factors of my life. And I guess I would simply share that with you today to say, if the subject of the gospel and race, if there are things in these weeks that will make you uncomfortable or make me uncomfortable, and there will be, if we could remember or note that God is very present when we weep with those who weep. I experienced it that, 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 that day in an incredible way. I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come and join us up here and, and lead us in one last song. While they do that, I'd like to ask us to, to consider one quote. This is from Glenn Packiam pointing us again to this power of lament. And this is what he says. Lament is not our final prayer. It is a prayer in the meantime. So just think about this for a moment. Right now, as we look at our world, and if you can see the absence of shalom in the area of race and the gospel and and that, if you can agree in that realm, and if that might move your heart to a greater level of saying, God, how could I be on a reconciling mission with you? Is there anything that he would call me to do in that realm? I'm encouraging you today to employ the tool and, and, and use the posture of lament in your prayer. But with this understanding, lament is not our final prayer. It is our prayer in the meantime. Most of the lament psalms end with a vow to praise, a promise to return thanksgiving to God for his deliverance. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we know that sorrow is not how the story ends. The song may be in a minor motif now, but one day it will be resolved in a major chord. When every tear is wiped away, when death is swallowed up in victory, we will sing at last a great hallelujah. But for now, we lift our lament to God as we wait with hope. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. So Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would help us today. We pray as you are in the business of, of doing incredible heart work. We pray, Lord, that there would be a, a stirring, that there would be a moving, that there would be, Lord, I, I just sense that maybe there's some, some small kind of creaking that is happening sort of deep inside as we consider your heart for your world. It may very well be, God, that as we say simply and we sing this many times, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. That you would not allow us to see the pain in our world with indifference. That we would not simply run to our default 
protections of our own self-righteousness, but that we would recognize that the brokenness in our world and the hurt in our world needs a healer, needs a savior. Lord, I pray that you would stir us in the places, convict us in the areas in which we need to do some personal shifting. Convict us of the places we've been apathetic. Convict us, God, of the places that we have been the aggressor. Always so quick to defend ourselves. Help us to listen. Help us to be humble. Help us, God, to be hopeful. In Jesus' name. God, we sense such a, a lack of hope in our world. And you have equipped us to do better than simple accusation. And so, Lord, I pray that we would use the, in the tools of humility that you would do a redeeming work in our world. Father, we pray that Jesus would be magnified, that his plans would unfold, and that even out of the brokenness that we see in our world around us, that there might be the seeds of new revival that would be planted. As we believe, Jesus, you have said you are calling to yourself those from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. So Lord, set us on a trajectory and if we take a small step in your direction today, it's good. Hear us, Lord, as we sing to you. Hear our hearts, Lord, as we pray. Hear our lament and respond, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.